Good morning, church. Um, thank you, Theo, Theo's dad, for modeling for us um, lament this morning. We are again gathered in the house of mourning. And it is God's providence that we should be so gathered here because this week has been a difficult one, especially for our Asian sisters, brothers, and elders. It has been a week. I may need a box of tissues, by the way. <laughs> it has been a week characterized by what um, Zach Eswine calls the inconsolable things. And that is the sins and miseries of this world that will not be eradicated until heaven comes home. The things that only Jesus and no one, not one of us can overcome. And what lament has taught us these past few weeks is that the presence of inconsolable things does not mean the absence of God's power. However, it actually establishes it. The continuing presence of inconsolable things, of sickness, of death, and the sin that bores into and infests human beings. And our lament over the pain and the sorrow that these things produce. Inconsolable things actually reveals the ache, the groaning, the eager longing to be set free from the bondage of corruption and brokenness of our world. And friends, I cannot promise that the ache of your heart that the pain and the sorrow which ails you will be removed. But I hope that we have shown you these past few weeks how lament gives you the tools to interpret your pain, to understand what lies underneath it, while turning to God, bringing your complaint to God, hoping in God, and ultimately, trusting in God. Our text this morning, as we come to the end of our series in the Book of Lamentations, reveals, and as this past week has made stark yet again, sometimes pain does not go away quickly. Sometimes pain lingers. Sometimes pain comes in waves and troughs and crests. Lament then really is prayer in pain on the path to praise and trust in God. As we saw last week in chapter four, the weeping prophet has come down from the summit of hope 
in chapter 3, and we're struck again by the fact that Jerusalem is still in ruins, and the people are still grievously devastated and suffering under extreme cruelty. You see, this final chapter of the book of Lamentations, interestingly enough, it doesn't resolve in a neat, pat, tidy way, much like our suffering and pain. The sun doesn't come shining through Jeremiah's circumstances at the end of the book. He's not finishing the last notes of his song, the last stanza of this poem while dining al fresco at a Michelin-starred restaurant while overlooking the temple gardens in Jerusalem. No. The weeping prophet is still sitting amidst the ruins. He's still in the nadir of human experience. He's amidst the very conditions that caused his despair. And it is from this trough that he cries out to God. And it is from this outcry that we get the title of our discourse in the text this morning. Prayer in Pain. Please turn your Bibles, if you have not already, to Lamentations, chapter 5. Lamentations, chapter 5. It is the last chapter of the book we have been walking through during Lent. Now, you see, the last chapter of Lamentations is different than the other four. It, it contains familiar themes about devastation, and suffering, but it is also a unique chapter. For example, while there are 22 verses, they don't follow the pattern of using the Hebrew alphabet as an acrostic. The verses are much shorter and they are staccato-like. There, there is a higher concentration of prayerful statements in this chapter, and it's the most request-orientated chapter in the book. You see, here in Lamentations, we don't end at the summit of hope. Rather, it ends with three prayers, asking God for help and deliverance, even with the uncertainty as to when or how or even if God will answer favorably. I think these three prayers uh, form the basis of my sermon this morning, and they're connected to the use of O Lord. We see that in three places. Verse 1, remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Verse 19, but you, O Lord, reign forever. And then in verse 21, restore us to yourself. Oh, Lord. There's another way you can say the text. It's, it's sort of saying something like, don't forget our pain, oh, Lord. But you still reign, oh, Lord. Oh, we need you desperately, oh, Lord. 
seems to me then that these three statements serve as a great summary of this entire book and the message of lament. And I want to unpack them each in turn. The first, remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Now, the first word of chapter 5 is as important thematically as the first words of chapter 1, 2, and 4. Now, in those earlier chapters, they began with the word how, which was meant to communicate an element of, of shock and outrage at what has happened. But chapter 5, as we'll see in a moment, has the same level of outrage at what has happened. But the context of it is different. In this chapter, the, the expression of outrage is turned to a heartfelt prayer for God to remember what has happened to them. The word remember, remember is very important when it comes to God's relationship with his people, right? It, it captures the essence of God's grace to his people and how he keeps his covenant with them. For example, in Genesis 9, when God promises to never destroy mankind in a flood again, what does he say? I will remember my covenant. That is between me and you. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant. So whenever we now see a rainbow, what do we do? We remember. Because God has promised to remember. Again, when the Israelites sinned with the golden calf and they were messing around, Moses pleaded with God to be merciful by remembering his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then in Psalm 25, David cried out to God for mercy. He said, remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgression. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Now, the, this appeal forgot to remember in Lamentations 5 is forgot to do more than just don't forget. The, the request is for God to deliver his people in light of their disgrace. The, the leveling of Jerusalem has made them yearn for God's help. Their, their pain has turned them to God, asking him to remember. Because to ask God to remember is to both acknowledge the pain of what has happened and to look to God for help. Remember is a great word in lament. It is a prayerful, faith-filled word for hurting people. Now, the other word that is important in verse 1 is disgrace. You see that there. Look and see our Disgrace. The, this word carries with it a sense of, of blame, of being scorned or, 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 or casting reproach on someone else. Now, verse 2 through 18, they catalog what that disgrace looks like. And the list is very specific. And, and that's what makes suffering at any level all the more painful. Pain can feel like one thing after another. No, haven't we experienced one thing after another? 
these past year. What we find in these verses is, a, is almost a rapid-fire summary of what the previous four chapters detailed. See there in verse 2, they were invaded. Their homes in the country were overrun by a foreign nation. Verse 3, they were abandoned like an orphan child or widow after the death of her husband. The, the nation was alone. Verse 4, they were economically depressed. The economic situation in Israel was terrible and unrelenting. Verse 5, they were exhausted. The constant reality of destruction left them weary and with no rest. Verse 6, they were dependent. The nation had unsuccessfully and unwisely relied on other nations. Verse 7, they were disciplined. They were bearing the consequences of their nation's rebellion. Verse 8, they were societal upheaval. Their society had been completely upended. Verse 9, they were desperate. Survival, getting bread even came with a constant threat of danger. Verse 10, they were sickened. Hunger and dehydration was taking their toll on the people. Verse 11, they were assaulted. Their women were being victimized. Verse 12, they were dishonored. Their princes and elders were disrespected. They, they had no positions of honor anymore. Verse 13, they were oppressed. People were subject to forced labor. Verse 14 and 15, there was mourning. The, the music had stopped because there was no reason to rejoice anymore. Verse 16, they were ashamed. They'd fallen from their prominent position because of their sins. Verse 17, they were grieved. Israel was dealing with the sorrows of their condition. In verse 18, they were devastated. This nation is desolate. Wild animals were roaming around in the ruins. Everywhere they looked, there was destruction. Every aspect of the nation is affected. Everything is ruined. And the nation's only hope was that God had not forgotten about their plight. They were staking their claim of hope in God's promise to remember. And oh, there is great hope. There is great promise that God sees and God knows. That he is well acquainted with our grief and sorrow. He is not forgotten. He has not abandoned his people. Oh, God remembers. God has seen your tears this week, my sister Naomi. He has heard your cries, my sister Sarah. God sees and knows how you fought and dared to hope these past couple years, Dana and Matt, to each and every one of us as we have turned and tossed in sleepless darkness, and the quiet stillness of the night was pierced by our weeping. As we ate ashes like bread and our drink was mingled with tears, chapter 5 reminds us and gives us a measure of comfort that God knows and God sees, that God remembers.
And then verse 19. But you, O Lord, <laughs> but you, O Lord, reign forever. This, this is the second prayer connected to the word, O Lord, in chapter 5. And its focus is upon the sovereign rule of God over all things, which is really important in light of the description of disaster that we found in verses 1 through 18, right? The circumstances of life have a narrative to them. Of course, by themselves, you may be tempted to draw the conclusion that life is totally out of control. That this world, this society, this nation is out of pocket. It's out of control. Or worse, that God is not ultimately in control. However, we have heard over and over about the Lord's direct hand in everything, including the suffering of his people. In chapters 1 and 2, we heard statements like, the Lord gave me into the hands of those that I cannot withstand, chapter 114, or he summoned an assembly against me, chapter 1, verse 15, or the Lord has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud, chapter 2, verse 1. So, so while Babylon may be the means of judgment and discipline, it was ultimately God that was behind it. God used a sinful pagan nation in order to accomplish his divine purposes. Verse 19, as we see, is short, but it is important. It acknowledges that there is a bigger reality than the suffering and the destruction which we face. Verse 19 is acknowledging God's supremacy over everything, including our pain. It recognizes that the center of the universe is the throne of God. It is not my pain. It is not my suffering. God reigns. This is the second but statement that represents an important pivot in our thinking in this book. The first one, if you remember, was in Lamentations 3.21, where it says, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Now, that verse led us to truths that create hope. And in chapter 3, it was an invitation to turn from difficult circumstances to the truth about who God is. And in chapter 5, the but statement is a faith statement about who is really in control of these circumstances. In other words, what you believe about God's sovereignty and his supremacy really, really matters when life becomes difficult. Unless you think that is a rare truth found only in Lamentations we heard it read into our hearing earlier by Sister Sarah from Psalm 102. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call for my days. Pass away like smoke and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has Withered, And then in verse 12, he says, but you, oh, Lord, 
are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. One of the reasons that the sovereignty of God is so important here is because without it, without it, suffering is intolerable. It is pointless and hopeless. Now, God's sovereignty doesn't answer all of our questions. Just look at verse 20. Why do you forget us forever? But here's the thing. The, the presence of hard questions doesn't negate the reality and the hope of God's rule over all things. Oh, that should be a shock moment for some of us. Is there anything going on in your life today for which you need to pray? But you, oh Lord, reign forever. Do you find yourself abandoned or depressed, exhausted, desperate, assaulted, oppressed, grieved, or devastated? Has your life or some part of it been leveled recently? Are you wondering internally or out loud, why do you forsake me for so many days? If so, my friends, let me encourage you to join with Jeremiah in saying, but you, oh Lord, reign forever. God, I've cried all night. I got no tears left to cry, but you reign forever. God, my soul is disquieted within me, and grief rocks my body, but you, oh Lord, reign forever. God, we are subjected to the repeated trauma of innocent lives cut down like mere chattel at the workplace, in the marketplace, on the sidewalk, and on the street, in the home, in schools, and even in church. But you, oh Lord, reign forever. Oh, how beautiful it is to rest and trust in God's reign. Even when our city, our nation, our families, or even our very own lives have been leveled, God reigns. He reigns forever. And we get to verse 21. Restore us to yourself, O Lord. This is the final and closing prayer of Lamentations. And it is an appeal for restoration. The word for restore here means to turn back or to cause to return back to a better position or state. It is a promise that God will bring his people back from their destruction. And the word is so important that it's used twice in verse 21. It's because the people desperately need restoration. The prophet Jeremiah also sent a letter to the exiles in Babylon to encourage them to keep following God. In Jeremiah 29, it records the message and the hope that was offered to them. 
the hope of restoration. It says, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. See, the hope for the people of Israel was that God would one day bring them back to their land and that he will restore them to their former glory. But this desire, if I may submit to you, is more than just a longing for the glory days of King David or Solomon or Hezekiah. The restoration of the people of God was primarily about a restoration to God. You see, more than the loss of the temple or the city or their identity, the, the greatest loss was the presence and blessing of God. And that is why Jeremiah 29 talks about seeking the Lord and the people of God, finding the Lord again. Because their devastation and their suffering was designed, as Pastor John taught us last week, to expose their sin and their greater need for spiritual restoration. And so the destruction of the city, indeed, the very sin that devastates us this week or this year, exposes the brokenness of sin in our society and the need for God to restore us. Indeed, these things happen God allows these things to happen in order to help the people of God realize how far we've fallen. And indeed, to produce repentance. These are great evangelical times, is it not? To see the suffering of those around us, to see the pain and the tears, and to be able to give voice in a language, indeed, of lament, so that people can understand that we need restoration. We need repentance. See, God delivered them over to their enemies in order to rescue them from themselves. God had humbled them. He had leveled them. He, he removed everything they previously trusted in, and now they were desperate. This is why I think the book ends with verse 22. Unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. As best as I can tell, the book ends with this kind of tone because, one, the people have been exceedingly humbled. And two, because they don't know the full story of God's plans. 
they're not necessarily questioning God's eventual restoration here. The, the book of Jeremiah promises uh, restoration very frequently, but, but you find this kind of tone here because the weight of discipline has brought them to a point where even their asking for restoration sounds different. Note here then the value of suffering. Whether it's innocent or deserved, it changes you deeply. Suffering changes you. And this is what I hope that Lamentations has done for you these past few weeks. I hope it's changed you. It's changed how you see yourself, how you see the world, how you understand the presence of sin and the brokenness of the culture. I hope it's changed how you see the glory of God, His holiness and His sovereignty over all things. See, reading a lament or living a lament tunes your heart such that you seek the Lord differently. Lament causes us to look at the circumstances of our life differently. So differently, in fact, that you know it is the Lord who is doing it. <laughs> lament calls us to see the world with a different lens. For that is why he says in Lamentations 3.27, it is good for man to bear the yoke in his youth. And this is why we can be thankful that the Lord leveled us, who made us sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. This brings us to the end of lament, or at least the end of this series, and the conclusion of our study of Lamentations. But before we say goodbye to this book, I want to remind you that the same prophet who recorded the dark words of Lamentations also heralded that there would one day come a time when God will deal once and for all with the underlying brokenness that caused Jer Jerusalem's destruction. Listen, listen to the hopeful words of the prophet Jeremiah as he talked about a coming new covenant that we see come through who else but Jesus. He says in Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the 
greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. Oh, blessed be God. This, this is the gospel because through Christ, the problem underneath every problem and every suffering and every pain, our sin was dealt with such that the new covenant was inaugurated at the cross. And we're going to see that in the coming weeks because Christ's death brought the end of condemnation, judgment, and God's wrath. Christ's death and resurrection made it possible for us to be born again, for Christ's spirit to dwell in us, for his law to be written on our hearts. So while we still live in a broken world, we are still in the already, but not yet. We look forward to the promise and trust in God's word that one day all lamenting will cease because he says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. I flipped to the end of the book. I saw the ending and God himself will be with us as our God. He will do what? He will wipe away every tear. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, no crying, no pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Friends, this, this is our prayer in pain. This is our hope against despair. And in this we trust, even in tempest-tossed, that God knows, that God sees, that God reigns, and that God will return to wipe away all of our tears and make all things new.